Would you please open your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. And now we will explain later why Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. Would you please stand if you can? Here's the word of the Lord. And when you pray, oh, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Oh, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Please be seated. Father, we, we pray the, the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts you truly, will truly be pleasing in your sight. Help me, help the congregation. Pray that your Holy Spirit would be working in us so that your kingdom would come, conquer our selfish kingdoms, empower us to obey your will for the glory of your name. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In his book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, that's a wonderful book, by D.A. Carson, Don Carson. A Call to Spiritual Reformation, Priorities from Paul and His Prayers. Carson says, One of the foundational steps in knowing God, and the context is he's arguing that what the church needs the most is the knowledge of God. A biblical sound knowledge of God. Not idolatrous knowledge of God as we see permeating the churches today in America, but sound. So he says, one of the foundational steps in knowing God and one of the basic demonstrations that we do know God is prayer. A spiritual, persistent, biblically minded prayer. We have learned, we have learned to organize, build institutions, publish books, insert ourselves into the media, develop evangelistic strategies, and administer discipleship programs, but we have forgotten how to pray. Can anybody say amen to that? We mastered. We mastered business in the church. All sorts of classes. All sorts of activities. Sadly, we don't know how to pray. Where is our delight in praying? Where is our sense that we are meeting with the living God? That we are doing business with God? It says, just as God's Word must reform our theology, our ethics, and our practices, so also must it reform our praying. Sadly, 
Carson's assessment is all too true. Christian churches, particularly in the West, they're full of believers or professing believers who have an anemic, very anemic prayer life without vitality, without life. Part of the reason we struggle with prayer is that we do not know what to pray for or how to pray, right? And the other reason is self-sufficiency. Why don't we pray more? Because we believe we can do things in our own. If every day you woke up and you thought to yourself, I cannot do, I cannot go through my day unless God empowers me. Unless God pours His mercy upon me. Unless God guards me. You'd pray. But, the, but because you believe you can wake up in the morning and keep going through your day. That there is no spiritual warfare. That you are self-sufficient. You can do that on your own. That's why you don't pray more. That, that, that's basic truth. Because as soon as you realize how much you need His grace, how much you need to spend time with Him, how much you need to call upon His name, you will pray. But the other aspect, that's something you need to work in your heart. The other one I can help by instructing you, helping you to know how and what to pray for. Prayer time for many Christians is boring and tedious. Isn't that true? For so many Christians, the prayer time is boring, tedious, no excitement in prayer. And we see uh, there is hypocrisy here because we profess with our mouths how powerful is prayer. Oh, prayer is powerful. Prayer is vital. We need to pray more. But yet, with our actions, the lack of prayer, the lack of vitality with prayer, the lack of excitement with prayer, the lack of attention during prayer, we say prayer is this awesome time of intimacy between God and me, and yet we are so easily distracted during prayer time. Sometimes we are praying right here as a church, and our minds are over there. We are looking at what's going on. Wait a sec, but you just said that prayer is powerful, that prayer is vital, that prayer is this time of fellowship, and yet... You're wandering around with your mind and your eyes. Many Christians are like the little girl. There was this little girl who one night she realized that every night she prayed the same thing. So do you know what she did? She recorded her prayer. And very simple. So every night she would just play that prayer. Why? Hey, I always pray the same thing. And we, so often, do the same thing. By always repeating the same things, not thinking about what you're praying, without excitement, the joy of the blessing of being able to pray. Preaching, singing, Giving, water baptism, the Lord's Supper. They're all acts of worship in the body of Christ. And we all agree that the preaching, the singing, the Lord's Supper, water baptism, all these things must be instructed, guided, rooted in the Word of God. Amen? Hey, if I come here to preach and I don't preach the Bible... What's going to happen? Yeah. Get out of there. If we come here to sing and we are singing Bob Marley, YouTube, uh, whatever else you want to sing, what's going to happen? Something's wrong with this church. Wait, the Bible is not informing. It's not informing. There's music. There's singing. There's no theological grounds. If when you're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we decide to do whatever you want. 
When it's time for water baptism, we decide to do whatever we want. You know, many of you would leave this church, and rightly so. But why, when it comes to prayer, we think that we have the authority and the right to come up with our own prayers? Isn't that amazing? All the other aspects of worship, we demand that the Bible must be informing us. When it comes to prayer, we think that we have the freedom to decide to pray however I feel like. And you remember that series that we did last year, the two years ago, towards the end of 2019, beginning of, I don't even know when we did that, but it was a series on worship. Remember? And we, we saw how worship must be guided, instructed by the revelation of God. We don't worship God however we want. You look through the Scriptures, and when people worship God however they want, do you know what happens to them? Dad. Strike dad. All our acts of worship are guided, instructed by the Scriptures. And prayer is an act of worship. Amen? Ah, Prayer is an act of worship. Therefore, our prayers also must be guided, instructed by the Word of God. And as I was thinking, a new year, a new habit, and how marvelous it is for us as a church to begin a new year with a new habit of praying God-exalting, kingdom-centered prayers. Amen? That will change our lives. Once we stop with those selfish, superficial, silly prayers and start praying God-centered, biblical-minded, kingdom-exalting prayers, things will change. I promise you. And I thought to myself, I talked to the elders, and I said, oh, we are in a good place in Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul is about to shift gears and, and, and... and tackle a different subject in the church. So I said, let's just take a pause here and learn how to pray as a church. It was many years ago when I, I, we, we had a study on the Lord's Prayer. How many of you were here when we did a study on the Lord's Prayer on Wednesday night? Yeah, you see? That's crazy. <laughs> it's less than I thought. <laughs> Praise the Lord, more people are coming to church. Yeah. So, it's important for us to learn how to pray. And there is no better place than to learn how to pray than to learn from the mouth of our Lord Jesus. Amen? Let me ask you, who taught you how to pray? Who taught you how to pray? You don't need to answer me, but think through We learn how to pray in our young Christian age, as spiritually or physically. We learn how to pray by listening to others. That's and as you grow in your Christian walk and you start looking at the scriptures, start letting the scriptures reform your prayer. But we learn primarily from those who are around us. If we have Christian parents, we learn how to pray by listening to our parents praying. If you, if you don't have Christian parents, you learn how to pray from people in the church. So think, who taught you how to pray? And today, and the next, I'm planning three Sundays on the Lord's Prayer. We have the privilege of sitting at the Lord's feet and learn how to pray. Here is a master class. Do you know what a master class is? Good. I had a master class this week with Master on how to handle firearm. So you get the pro, you get one who knows, who is 
well known for his knowledge in certain areas. And you learn that skill. Today we have the privilege of sitting at the feet of Christ. And let me tell you, the Lord's prayer, prayer, when rightly understood, rightly applied, is the most insurgent of all prayers. It rises against the flesh. It stands in opposition against self-centeredness and apathy. It fights against the kingdom of the self. It marches advancing the kingdom of God. So, I thought, why don't we as a church declare resolved, resolved to pray kingdom-centered prayers in this church? So much going on around us. So much going on around us. It's so easy. It's so easy to become self-centered. And we need to be reminded it's not about me. It's not about the U.S. It's not about the Constitution. It's about the Kingdom of God. Amen? Martin Luther, he said the following about this prayer. He says, the Lord's Prayer is the very best prayer. Even better than the Psalter. Which is so very dear to me. It's surely evident that a real master composed and taught it, this prayer. There is no nobler prayer to be found on earth. For it has the excellent testimony that God loves to hear it. The Lord's Prayer binds the people together so that each prays with and for the other. And it makes it strong and mighty so they drives away even death, he says. <laughs> he was crazy. <laughs> oh, the Lord's Prayer, and you can just picture Him, is my prayer. Yes. And I say, the Lord's Prayer could be called the Kingdom's Prayer. Because it's all about the Kingdom. It's about the King. It's the King's name that must be hallowed. It's the Kingdom of the King that must come. It's the King's decree, His will, His laws that must be obeyed. The King provides the daily bread. The King pardons. The King protects. Therefore, it's fitting to find this prayer in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. That focuses so much in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God. God and Jesus as King. So that's where we find ourselves. So looking in Matthew chapter 4. And I need to take some time today just to bring us into the context so we know where we are. Otherwise, I feel horrible if we go through a passage and we have no idea where we are treading upon the territory. So let's see where we are. We are in the Gospel of Matthew. It's a wonderful bridge to connect the Old Testament with the New Testament. And look at chapter 4, verse 23. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, it says, And Jesus went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming, Look at that. Teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Words. Words. Teaching. Proclaiming. And now works. The teaching related to the kingdom and now the works related to the kingdom. And healing every disease and every affliction among the people. That's very important. The kingdom is here. So there is teaching about the kingdom and there is works connected to the kingdom. And that's how Matthew divides his, the body of his gospel account. The teachings, and he has five major places of Jesus' teachings. And also the works of the king. So, let me ask you a very, very important and difficult question. What comes before Matthew chapter 6? Are you guys sure? 
Yes, Matthew chapter 5. And, and what is Matthew chapter 5? Oh, good. So now we know where we are. Matthew chapter 5 through 7. What is that? The Sermon on the Mountain. Okay, that's very important. It's a block of teaching. And then you move to chapter 8. Look in your Bibles. What happens in chapter 8? Words and works. Words. And you start in chapter 8. What do we have? The works of Christ. We're going to start healing, uh, delivering people. We start in chapter 8 and the following chapters. Okay? And you see, it's very important. The Sermon on the Mount. Very famous portion of the Scriptures. And the key is to see what Jesus is doing here. And if I were to ask you, what is the Sermon on the Mount all about? What would you answer? If somebody came to you and said, everybody talks about blessed is so and so, blessed is so and so. What is this Sermon on the Mount all about? Tell me. What would you say? What would you tell that person? Most people believe that the Sermon on the Mount is about ethical steps for everyone in the world. So you have all sorts of different religions and people from all types of religions, they love the Sermon on the Mount. Certain portions, of course, taken out of context. But they love certain things. I remember I had a, a great aunt, hardcore spiritist, loved talking to demons, and should always quote the Beatitudes. So, people have an idea about the Sermon on the Mount, and they always think that's all about how to live, ethics. And there is Something here, I believe it's the ethics of the kingdom, how to live under the Lordship of Christ. But more important, the Sermon on the Mount, the main subject is Jesus Himself. If somebody asks you, what is the Sermon on the Mount all about? You can say it's about Jesus Himself. How do we know that? You have heard this, but I say this. You have heard that, but I tell you this. Where is the authority now? Sam read chapter 7. The grounds of sustaining someone, the words of Christ. So it's the authority of Jesus as King that's the primary show here. And no wonder... The Sermon on the Mount ends, look in chapter 7. Look at how it ends. And when Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished at His teaching. For He was teaching them as one who had what? Authority. That's the whole purpose. To show the authority of Jesus. He is the new and greater Moses, who ascends the mountain and gives a new Torah, a new instruction to His people. No longer the old law is going to be in charge, but My words will be in charge of your lives. That's very important. So, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, he says the following about the Sermon on the Mount. Let me see if I have here. Yes. Yes. The sermon is not aiming to produce a sense of hopelessness and despairing us. Rather, it's intended to set before us a glorious vision of what the Lord intends our lives to become. The sermon is Jesus' manifesto. It describes a regal lifestyle, the new behavior, behavior pattern for the new kingdom we have entered. And as Jesus is touching all areas of our lives, there is one area that does not escape, and it's the area of prayer. He also shows His authority 
over our prayer life. Huh. Have we been submitting to the authority of Jesus in our prayer lives? If I ask Rick, if I ask Rebecca, if I ask Sam, hey, can I hear your prayers? Record your prayers. And let's see if your prayers are coming under the authority of Jesus' teaching when it comes to prayer. Are your prayers reflecting submission to the authority of Christ? And you see, for some people, that's offensive. That's scandalous. What? Now Jesus is going to tell me how to pray? We belong wholly to Him. Every single area of our lives belong to Him. Even our prayers. One scholar, he writes, What one finds here in the Lord's Prayer is no less than the greatest teacher's greatest sermon on his favorite topic, the kingdom of God. If prayer is important, then we should hear the greatest word on the subject out of the greatest sermon on the greatest topic spoken by the greatest teacher who ever lived. And we must, we must sit at His feet and say, Teach us, O Lord. Teach us how to pray. Because left to ourselves, it's so easy for our, for our prayer lives to become self-centered. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel. Right? So we need to, alright. No, no. Teach me, Lord. Teach me how to pray. So, the outline of this sermon is the following. So, we're going to look at first the importance of prayer. And that's verse 1 of chapter 6. Then Jesus teaches how not to pray, verses 5 through 8. And then He teaches how to pray. And then you have the invocation. You have the first three petitions, God's glory Primarily, and then you have the last three petitions, is God's glory through men's basic needs. Daily bread, or provision, pardon, protection. And then you have the vital addendum. Ho, ho, ho. You better forgive one another, otherwise your prayers will have no effect. So, let's... Move. Verse 1, chapter 6. So we know what Jesus is dealing with here. It says in verse 1 of chapter 6, I'm reading from the ESV, it says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then we, you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So, that's the context for Jesus to tackle the subject of prayer. And that's very important because He talks about works of righteousness. Do you see there in verse 1? To practice your deeds, your works of righteousness. And some people, I can see, it's like a deer with the ears up. Works of righteousness. I thought you were justified by Christ's righteousness alone. Amen. Yes, we are. But the Bible also talks about once we are justified, once we are union with Christ, once we have been declared righteous by God the Father, we also do works that reflect His righteousness. Amen? And... Uh, and what Jesus, it's important here because, remember, Jesus is dealing with an audience in the first century Palestine. They have a Jewish background. And for the Jews, the three primary works of righteousness were, guess, look at chapter 6, and you will guess what the three major works of righteousness were for the Jewish people. What is Jesus dealing with in chapter 6? Fasting? Prayer? And what else? 
charity or giving alms. Okay? Those are very important. As we move throughout the New Testament, the coming of the New Covenant, we no longer see the command to fast, but we see the repetition of the command to pray. That's just food for your thought. You can go home and study. We are commanded in the New Testament to do a pray. And that's a wonderful work, or as we see here, deeds of righteousness. And I cannot spend much time here. I already spoke a lot about prayer. I think we had a whole sermon, one hour sermon, just dealing with prayer as as an act of worship. And I don't want to linger here. But it's important to see the first of all, he says, practicing your righteousness. And there is an aspect of prayer that's a work. It's hard work. Amen? Every act of worship must be costly, must be out of service. That's very important, brothers and sisters. Don't you think that prayer will not require from you something. It must require. Everything that we do to the Lord must be done out of a desire to serve, be costly. And the same with prayer. To call upon the name of the Lord. One scholar says, A simple glance at Matthew chapter 26 And Jesus' prayer in the garden shows beyond any doubt that prayer is not always a walk in the park. And we see that Jesus, the righteous one, the source and grounds of all righteousness, was a man of prayer. Prayer is a beautiful work of righteousness. Prayer is a reflection of the gospel. It shows that we are powerless. Prayer shows that we are beggars in need of mercy. What is prayer but calling on the name of the Lord? Come, Lord, do what I cannot do. That's the basic idea of prayer through all the Scriptures. And yes, we add praise, thanksgiving, but the basic concept of prayer in the Scriptures is to call on the name of the Lord. Do. Do the work of salvation that we cannot do. Accomplish your promises to us, Lord. That's prayer. It's a reflection of the gospel. Prayer conforms us to the likeness of Jesus. Prayer is one of God's sovereign means to fulfill His kingdom purposes. Prayer reveals the spiritual maturity of the church. Prayer protects the church. Prayer is a precious activity and an act of worship. It's precious because the privilege of praying was bought with the precious blood of Jesus. We cannot pray Apart from the blood of Christ washing us, causing us to be adopted into God's family. That's very important, brothers and sisters. So Jesus is going to teach how not to pray, first of all. And you see, throughout chapter 6, He always begins with a rebuke, an exhortation of what not to do. So He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. And, and if you study uh, systems of education, especially in our days, it's very popular to teach parents that they cannot teach their children, no, stop with the prohibition. Stop with the prohibition. That's harmful to the children. Don't say no. Though there are books and articles, ten ways to say no without saying no. That's not how the wisest man who ever lived on the earth, Jesus Christ, teaches. There is a time to say no, to rebuke. Beware, don't do that. Sound biblical education will require prohibition. But will also require words of affirmation. Amen? So, before learning how to pray, Jesus teaches how not to pray. And many of us, 
need this lesson here. How not to pray? There, there, there must be a, a demolition process before building up something. And that's what Jesus is doing here. So he says, and when you pray, look at verse 5, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. And let me tell you just very important because I met people who refused to participate in church gathering prayers because they would say, hey, hey, Jesus said we cannot pray in public. Okay? And that's not what Jesus is doing. He's putting His finger, His mighty finger, in the heart of the issue. Why are you doing that in public? I have seen, I have heard people say, nobody should know how much I give to the church. And they come right here to chapter 6. And they miss the point. So why are you giving? Oh, now the church knows how much I give. Go through the Scriptures. People knew how much other people were giving. They would lay at the apostles' feet what they were giving. So the problem is not to know. The problem is why are you doing that? That's very important. Look at the key words. Jesus doesn't say, because they love to be heard. But they love to be seen. By others. The problem is the reason, the motives, the motivation behind the activities. And also Jesus is bringing to balance the command in chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, verse 16. You see what a master teacher he was. So look at chapter 5, verse 16. He says, In the same way, let... Your light shine before others, so that they may see what? Your hidden works. Now they're going to see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's very important. Now, he's explaining the purpose behind. You see, one, he's doing public, and most of our works are public, and we do it. Why? So God gets the glory. The other is doing the works in public. Why? So I get the glory. So that's what Jesus is doing here. He's a very wise teacher. He's bringing to balance. There's a vast difference between glorifying God with public works and the desire to glorify ourselves. And also the context of chapter 5 is persecution. There's a vast difference between hiding your public deeds in order to avoid persecution And on the other, publicizing your deeds in order to gain reputation. Also, we see here that not all prayers are acceptable before God. (laughs) Amen? Not all prayers are acceptable before God. Oh, just say a word to the man up there. What is that? Say a word to the man up there. Not all prayers are acceptable before God. Old and New Testament. There are many, many passages. The Father does not listen to the prayers of Christians when these Christians are living in unrepentant sin, cultivating unforgiving hearts, blabbing repetitions of man-centered prayer. So, for example, James says in James chapter 4, verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask what? Amiss. That you may spend it on your pleasures. So some of you might be praying for a long time and the Lord doesn't answer. And do you know why? Because it's self-centered. How about this one here? 1 Peter 3.7 Like wise husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. You can see the wives just, yes. (laughs) Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may may not be hindered. Whoa. 
how one spouse treats the other spouse might be hindering the prayers. Why? Because marriage is a reflection of Christ and His bride. So, and Jesus confronts two types or two patterns of prayer you can see in your Bibles. The first, the first one is the, the prayer of the Pharisees, the hypocrites. And it's rooted in hypocrisy, he says. And hypocrisy, you remember, was a Greek word related to the actors who put masks. So actually, there is nothing in their hearts longing to be heard by God. They just want a place so people can see and applaud and say, Wow, how pious, how religious you are. I just want to be like you. And the Jews had set times of prayer, morning, afternoon, evening. Remember Daniel? He would bow and pray three times per day. And Peter, we read in Acts, and they go to the temple at the time of prayer. So we can just picture these Jews here. They would wait to go outside. I need to go to the market, but I'm going to wait. And it's near noontime. And I'm going to find the busiest corner. And I'm going to show myself pious. And that's what Jesus is prohibiting here. The problem is not the posture or the place. Because He says, they love to stand in the synagogues or at the street corners. The problem is not the posture because you read through the Scriptures and you see people praying, God honoring prayers on their knees, standing in the lion's den, uh, everywhere. The problem is the heart. They want pray like that so people can see them. When a scholar says, apparently the hypocrites would plan their days so as to be in some conspicuous place when it was time to pray, on busy street corners in the square, Oh, they would lift their hands to God and display their devotion to all who were passing by. They could. They could have just, all right, time to pray. Find a place quietly and pray. But no, they love to display. Display. So verse 6, the Lord says, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. Jesus, when it comes to sin, the solution is never, oh, that's okay, that's fine, just pet a little bit your sin, just feed a little bit your sin. It's always what? Chop it off. Cut it off. And that's what He's doing right here. If you have a problem sinning when you're going to pray in public, be drastic. Be drastic. Train yourself in a place where nobody's looking at you. And if you remember Palestinian homes in the first century, there were no spare room. It's not like most of our homes where we have an extra bedroom. Sometimes we think, oh, yeah, we'll just go to an extra bedroom. Oh, I, don't, I don't have an extra bedroom in my house. So I can... No, no, no. The room here is probably the place where they would put the grain for the animals or for cooking. That's why there was a latch you could lock. And the audience that Jesus says, yeah, just the grains. That's a great audience for you to train yourself. Prayers to call on the name of the Lord, not to call on the attention of others. But look at the beauty of the gospel, the mercy of God. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And He says, and your Father who sees in secret will do what? Punish you? Will the Father punish you? Is that what Jesus says? What? He will reward you. He will reward you. The Father who is in heaven and sees in secret loves to reward His children. Jesus gives motivation to pray biblical-centered, God-exalting prayers. The Father loves that. And some Christians become very uncomfortable with rewards. Oh, oh, he's talking about rewards. But we are reformed. It's by grace alone. By faith alone. Jesus is not uncomfortable at all. 
He keeps talking about rewards and rewards and rewards throughout his ministry, throughout this chapter. He has no problem at all. Because he understands that everything is by grace. Everything is by grace. The rewards are gracious gifts given by God to those who render faithful service in His power. Rewards from God are not payment for services, but a gracious gift from a generous God. Rewards, like salvation, are God's gracious gifts. Is this reward for this life, for the next life? And I would say for both. The reward is His answer to our prayers. The reward is both earthly and heavenly eternal joy. The reward is the privilege of casting upon the Father all our burdens. We have this wonderful privilege. You look at people, you talk to people, everybody's burdened by what's going on. Every time you talk to people outside the church, it's always stressful. It's always a problem. And we have the privilege of just casting upon the Father all our anxiety. That's reward. The reward is fellowship with the Father. Or, through the Gospel of Matthew, the reward is to share in the kingdom of heaven. So that's the first prayer that Jesus attacks. The Pharisaic type. The one that wants you to display. And we all must be careful. I'm the first one here. The amount of times I pray in public. We all must be careful. Am I praying so people can see me? And we have this temptation, all of us, to pray to please people. We see people posting their prayer life on social media. Look at me how holy, how holy we are. We are praying now. Displaying. Desire to sound profound when you pray in public. Desire to sound like a Puritan. And there is no problem. We should strive, especially when we are praying in public, we should strive to pray biblically sound prayers. There is no problem with writing a prayer. There is no problem. As long as you know, and in your heart you know, that the purpose of the prayer is not to please people but you glorify God. That's very simple. I write all my prayers. Every single morning I write my prayers. There's no problem with that. It's actually a very good habit that I learned to write my prayers. I'm thinking. I'm not wandering around. There's a pattern. If somebody else looks at the journal, they can see my heart. Oh, does Guga submit to the Lord's instruction about prayer? When he prays, is he following biblical patterns? Or is he just vomiting words that he feels like? So, here is the second problem. The pagan pattern. So he says in verse 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. The Gentiles here refers to people outside the covenant. Pagans. And if you remember. You probably don't remember. But when you go through the Old Testament. There were the prophets of Baal. In the book of Kings. And the prophets of Baal. And they would be shouting from morning until noon. Oh Baal or Baal. Answer us. Repetition, babbling, trying to get God's attention, their God's attention. You see, because they don't have a God who is a father. They have these angry deities. Hopefully, by saying many words, I can get their attention. And the Lord says, no, 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 that's not how it works. Or, in Acts 19.34, the people in Ephesus shouting for two hours, 
Great is Artemis of Ephesus. Great is Artemis of Ephesus. That's their prayer. Try to get her attention. And the Jews also prayed this type of prayers. They would be babbling many Jewish benedictions and prayers as empty phrases. So the main rebuke here is not a condemnation on long prayers. Jesus himself prayed for a long time. He would pray all night. The problem is not long prayers in itself, but the babbling. Saying things that makes no sense. And I remember, I remember being part of certain churches where prayer was overcoming God's reluctance and hardness. So we had to pray for many hours to overcome God, to overcome His reluctance. And we're going to spend all night praying, banging at the gates of heaven, get God to answer us. As if He was this angry, reluctant God. And Jesus said, <laughs> and a lot of times we'd be praying tongues. And nobody knew what person was, was saying. All fit right here. Right here. Speaking many words. Make no sense. Trying to get God to do something as if He was this angry being. Jesus said, no, 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 no. No. He's a loving, gracious, merciful Father longing to reward you. So the power of prayer is not measured by the length, but by its weight. That's all we see here. So we must stop babbling nonsense. The same superficial repetitions like that little girl every night. And the Lord says, stop with that. That's why you're not getting answers to your prayer. Babbling. So, He says, the Father. Look at that. The Father who know, the Father knows what you need. What a beautiful sentence. The Father knows. Not just a mental knowledge. It's an experiential knowledge. The father, just like any father who truly loves their kids, they know what they need. Amen? We know what our children need. And, and, and Jesus says, And you who are evil know how to give good gifts. How, how much more? Our heavenly father. <laughs> so, he demolishes. There's the process of demolition that's important in order to build up a new frame that will sustain our prayers. And now very briefly here, let's just start verse 9. So, how to pray? Once the demolition process was accomplished, let's build up this frame here to sustain our prayers. And he says, pray then like this. It's in the imperative. Pray then. What is an imperative? Is it an option? It's a command. You must pray like this. Ooh, so we need to think. Are my prayers patterned after the command of Jesus? Pray then like this. And that's important, they like this. Why? Because he said, in a similar manner, you are to pray. You are not just to repeat this prayer, just like some of you come from a Roman Catholic background. How many times you repeated the Our Father, Pater Noster, thousands and thousands of times. That's not what Jesus is teaching, though it's good. Sometimes to repeat this prayer, it's part of the scriptures. To read, to memorize, to speak. But he doesn't want that. It's a pattern. It's an example how we are to pray. When a scholar says, let me see if I have here. 
Yeah, he says the Lord's Prayer is in fact the model prayer for His disciples. It provides for them not a mantra or a mantra to be mindlessly and superstitiously repeated, but an example of godly kingdom priorities in prayer. And my, my picture of this prayer, I love biology, I love the body, and it's like a skeleton. Okay? Think about the skeleton and the importance of the skeleton. You have to sustain... Organize your body, and then we add the other things. Okay, so that's very important. Jesus gives us the skeleton, the frame that will keep us upright. And then starting the next verses, we are going to see the following Lord's Day is what we know as what? The Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer. And many people, they argue and they say, no, that should not be called the Lord's Prayer. It should be called what? The Disciples' Prayer, right? And do you know the reason why? They say, this, this prayer cannot be called the, the Lord's Prayer because Jesus would never pray this prayer. He never sinned. He cannot pray, forgive us our debts. I, I, I kind of understand, but at the same time, we've got to be careful. Because Jesus, as the representative of sinful people, He was baptized. A baptism into repentance. He never sinned, but He was baptized. I don't see any problem with Him as the servant of the Lord, representing His people. Pray on behalf of His people. So, I love the title, The Lord's Prayer. That's how I'm going to use or kingdom-centered prayer. The Lord's Prayer. Why? Because it comes from the Lord. It's the Lord's prayer because it's coming out of His heart. His heart that's large, filled with affection towards us. And this prayer is coming out of His heart to teach His people how to pray. So it's a beautiful title, the Lord's Prayer. It's Him giving to us as a gift. Here's how we must pray. Here's how we must worship. And when you follow this, you will be rewarded. And also reminds us of the Lord's Supper. We have the Lord's Prayer. We have the Lord's Supper. Amen? We have the Lord's Church. Those are very important things. And as we prepare ourselves to partake of the Lord's Supper, and I'll think about the Lord's Prayer, and putting together the Lord's Supper with the Lord's Prayer, how can we do that? And it's very easy and simple. Just look at the invocation. The invocation. Our Father. Our Father. It's not the man up there, the unmoved mover. Our, our Father. Not the Father, not my Father, but what? Our Father. Do you find any First personal pronoun in this prayer. I, me, my. Do you find any there? Our, us, our, us. Why? When Christ saved you, when Christ rescued you, He brought you to His family. You are not the only child. Most often, the only child is very spoiled. And Brian might have some research with that. <laughs> and Jesus reminds us, you're not the only child here. You're part of a family. Our Father. Man, that goes completely contrary to a book on prayer that was so... Prevalent some, I have to say some decades ago, some years ago, the prayer of Jabez. How many here read that book, the prayer of Jabez? I read that school. Bless me! Enlarge my territory! Me, my! 
And the Lord's praise what? <laughs> Our. Our. Us. Kingdom-centered. Brent Osborne, he writes, The Lord's Prayer, with its plural pronouns and verbs, is meant to be uttered as a community. The New Testament is clear. Every aspect of the Christian life is intended to be lived out together as the family of God. We pray together, we grow spiritually together, and we stimulate one another in each part of our spiritual growth. We are not made to be rugged individualists and Christians who do not share with others live a life that God never intended. So the Lord's Prayer reminds us there is no place in God's family for the much-glorified American individualism. This prayer, as I said, is radical. It's revolutionary. It reorients your life. If you come to pray just thinking about yourself and me, my pain, I, me, me, my, my, and you stop it. I need to pray. And you come to the Lord's Prayer. Ooh. Us. 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 Your kingdom come. Your kingdom. Your kingdom come. And there are people who are part of your kingdom in Indonesia, in India, in Africa. And they're suffering much more than I am. Oh Lord, provide our daily bread. Our. It's not what's God's will for my life. I'm struggling with God's will for my life. No. Your will be done in the community of God's people. Huh. The opening words remind us that Christ Jesus, the Son of God, is the means of our adoption into God's family. That's why it begins with our Father. Our Father. We are reminded that we are one brick among many bricks in this heavenly temple. Our Father. I'm reminded that I'm a child among many, many children. I'm reminded I'm one sheep among a gigantic flock. Okay? Very important. Destroys the self-centeredness of much of our prayers today. Think about that. When you're praying this morning or yesterday, last week, how much of your prayer was focused on yourself? Oh Lord, help me. My needs. My problems, my issues, my pain. How much was kingdom-centered, family-centered. And you can see that only those who are in union with Jesus, if you are not in Christ, if you have not embraced Jesus, if you have not said, Amen, Jesus is my righteousness, you cannot pray this prayer. Because you are outside the family of God. John says, but all who did receive Jesus, all who believed in His name, He gave the right to become what? To become what? Children of God. So it says, our Father who is in heaven. This prayer reminds us that we are one soldier in the army of the Lord's soldier. And that's the same thing that takes place with the Lord's Supper. And we see more and more this individualistic Christianity. That's not Christianity at all. So many people. So many people just about myself. It's me. So, they think about baptism. Baptism outside the local church. You don't need the local church. It's me and my family are going to be baptized. We're going to have Lord's Supper in my house. I'm going to pray for my needs, my life. And the Bible comes and just destroys this selfish mentality. It's us. What is the Lord's Supper? Why does Paul rebuke the church in Corinth? 
He says, coming to this subject here, let me tell you, I have nothing to praise you. And what does he say? When you guys come to the Lord's Supper, you're a bunch of selfish people. You're not reflecting the gospel that made the many one. The broken bread to make you one. And the same with the Lord's Prayer. Reorient our lives. We stop thinking of ourselves. And we are reminded, our Father. Our Father. What a beautiful prayer. I'm excited to go through this prayer with you. I hope you're excited too. We see the importance of sitting under the feet of Christ and say, teach us. Teach us how to pray. And this prayer is not just a prayer. It's, it's a, a whole life reorientation. Amen. So, I would like to pray as we prepare ourselves to partake of the Lord's Supper. Thinking about the importance of this Supper. It's the Lord's Supper. It's the Lord's people partaking of the Lord's Supper. If you, if you are saved, if the Lord saved you, if you are baptized, if you are part of a local church, you are welcome to partake with us. That's for the believers. That's the table of the Lord. Amen? Lord. 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 You are the Sovereign over all the earth. And yet, You are our Father. It's amazing. It's majestic that we can come to You, the Creator, the King of kings, and call You Abba, Father. Lord, we, we beg You to change us, to transform us, into the likeness of Christ. Sovereign Father, we love You. We adore You. And we come to You through Jesus. We sang earlier, we come to the Father through Jesus the Son. We are adopted into Your family through Christ's blood. His blood was the price paid to adopt us into your family. And we praise you and we thank you. So as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper, reminds us, reminds us that we belong to your family. The greatest privilege of all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.